This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our conversation this week is actually a three-parter from interviews I did this last summer at General Assembly with Melissa Rogers, George Mason, and Kevin Cosby. We'll be hosting the podcast stage again this year. We hope you'll stop by or you can live stream on Facebook and Instagram. And now on to our conversation. Thank you, Andy. Glad to be here. Now, you had an extraordinary project uh, that Simmons put on along with a, a lot of wonderful <laughs> partnerships called the Angela Project. Correct, right. Tell us, tell us <clears throat> about the Angela Project. It's uh, designed to focus our attention on the uh, 400th anniversary of black enslavement that will be commemorated next year <clears throat> and uh, to help us understand how 1619 and uh, black enslavement set the trajectory for race in the, this country for 400 years. And um, by learning <clears throat> the lessons and seeking to uh, remedy some of the racial issues that we have in our country that emanate from 1619, we're hoping that next year uh, we will be able to set a new trajectory for race and we can only fix it when we face it, understand it, uh, and um, feel the shame and pain of it, but also uh, seeking to find ways in which we can truly set a new trajectory. Now this is um, a phenomenal project that had, I mean, so many wonderful people. And let me say that I said 16, uh, 2019, but it's a three-year project okay. that involves um, two black Baptist conventions, the National Baptist Convention of America, Progressive Baptist Convention of Martin Luther King, and of course, uh, a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And so the project kicked off this last year? Last year, correct, um, in what, Louisville. What's, what's coming up in 2018 for the project? 2018, we are talking about the wealth chasm and uh, how we're moving more towards the Gilded Age where wealth is concentrated by um, the 1%. Uh, black Americans, because of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, are at the bottom of the bottom. And the effect that this is having upon black communities is devastating. And this is all rooted <coughs> in, sl in uh, the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, uh, redlining, and the, the absence of opportunity where one group was locked out of wealth and opportunity. And so we are dealing with the consequences of that. We. Um, during the 60s and 70s, it was not as pronounced because income was up because of, of uh, the power of labor 
and jobs uh, that you had in the 60s. So uh, the whole lineage piece that black people are facing was often camouflaged because of that. But now, with the dec decline in wages, we are seeing the consequences of the legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow. So our goal is to draw attention to that because it is essential issue justice and advocacy for the poor and the oppressed is one of the cardinal issues in scripture. So we're hoping to um, mobilize the church, awaken the church uh, uh, about their civic and moral responsibility to address this. So for those that aren't able to attend the, the event uh, that <coughs> takes place in Louisville, um, how, can, how can local churches get involved in the Angela Project? Well, I think that um, I would like to encourage everyone to come, first of all. I think that it would be transformative. Secondly, uh, I think that you can learn a lot about um, true racial partnerships between churches by studying what's happening in Louisville with the Empower West model. For the past three years, uh, black and white churches have been meeting weekly <coughs> to discuss issues uh, of race and justice. And uh, I think the model is replicable across the country. And I think that if, if the church would get in the forefront of the issue of racial justice, I, I think that we can truly um, bring about authentic racial reconciliation. I think that so much of our reconciliation has been inauthentic mm -hmm. because it is reconciliation without justice. And you cannot have reconciliation without justice. Um, so learning what's happening in Empower West <coughs> And uh, also, I'm, I'm sure that um, there will be CDs and other material that you'll be able to acquire and, and, and learn what happened in the event that you're not, you can't make it. But I think if you can make it, do everything you can to make it to Louisville. Make it to Louisville, that's what he's saying. Everybody yeah. <laughs> make right. it to Louisville. Um, well, um, so uh, it's a three-year arc, uh, year two, obviously coming up uh, this coming fall. Yeah. Um, what's the long term, what's the hope of the Angela Project? The hope is <clears throat> so the Christians will really understand the, the, the impact that 246 years of black enslavement, black slavery, plus another 100 years of Jim Crow uh, redlining and being locked out of opportunity has the effect it has had upon African Americans. Uh, we know, you can tell when we're truly moving towards racial reconciliation. <clears throat> when the wealth gap is closing. Um, many people think that uh, when a, a racial reconciliation is about the absence of animus towards black people. You know, you, if, every, if every Christian in America had the spirit of a Mother Teresa, that would not heal race relations in America. You cannot heal race relations independent of justice. Uh, James Baldwin said, you cannot fix what you will not face. So um, our goal is, in the Angela Project, is to help people see American history. I think one of the mistakes we've made is that <clears throat> we bifurcate history and we say, okay, there's, there's American history and then there's black history. The fact of the matter is it should be interwoven because American history is black history. Um, uh, Race is central to understanding American history from the founding fathers debating over whether or not we would, inc we would allow slavery 
to the declaring that blacks were three-fifths of a person, to 1719, which said that only whites could be citizens, <clears throat> and the consequence <clears throat> of a civil war that uh, killed over 600 people. I mean, race is at the center, and the only reason we have a Black History Month is because, in February, is because uh, American history, often seen through the lenses of, of, of white Americans, uh, is a la carte history. You know, it, you, you pick what you like. Um, and so someone has said that while the North won the political war, the South won the cultural war. And the South was able to tell the story. So you have the daughters of the Confederacy and the reasons why you have a ple a, you've had a plethora of, um, of Southern statutes and, and rebel flags across the South is because it's been sanitized. Um, slavery was benign. Um, um, the uh, planters were not cruel towards their slaves. They were civil towards slavery, things like this. Th those are, that's, that's, that's false history. So helping people to understand the history, not that we want to live in the past, but it's important to understand how the past is affecting the present. Dr. Cosby, you, uh, class after class, member after member, are helping uh, retell that history through Simmons, through St. Stephen's Baptist Church. So thank you so much for your leadership. Well, I'm just thankful for CBF. Uh, it's it's uh, my fellowship. I'm glad to be a part of it. And I think that uh, CBF is on the cutting edge of, of truly building bridges of reconciliation through justice. And no one is talking about the 400th anniversary but us. So we're at the forefront, and I'm, I'm happy about that. We're grateful for your leadership. Okay. Thank you. Reverend Dr. Kevin Cosby. Thank you. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. This CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by Ministering to Ministers Foundation. MTM serves as advocates for clergy and their families, helping them manage crisis and transition and church relationships. The centerpiece of the ministry and healthy transition wellness retreat, which provides relaxed atmosphere and confidential setting for healing and encouragement to ministers and their spouses during conflict and after being forced out. Competent and compassionate leaders guide the journey towards wholeness and health, speaking to emotions, physical, spiritual, and needs of the participants. The next retreat will be July the 9th through the 13th at Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Call 804-594-2256 or email mtm at mtmfoundation.org for more information or visit 
mtmfoundation.org backslash wellness retreats. Well, for those joining us on Facebook Live and for George Mason's groupies we have here, uh, <laughs> our guest is uh, Dr. George Mason. He's the senior pastor of Wilshire Baptist Church here in Dallas. He has served in this role since August of 1989. Hard to believe. George is a nationally recognized leader among Baptists serving the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, New Baptist Covenant, Duke Divinity School, along with other local and global ecumenical and interfaith endeavors. George is a frequent op-ed contributor for the Dallas Morning News on subjects of public interest, the intersection of religion, such as public education, race relations, and predatory lending. George, thanks for joining the conversation. Great to be with you, Andy. And yeah. by the way, congratulations on your new pastorate. Thank you. Thank Looking you. forward to uh, following you as you get started. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, let's get started with uh, your service at Wilshire. Um, the Barna Group recently released a study uh, that found that the average tenure of a pastor has jumped significantly um, from four years in 1992 to 10 years in 2017. But, really? Yeah, this is another fascinating find. They found that uh, megachurch pastors stay longer. It's no wonder. Yes. <laughs> so the average megachurch pastor stays about 21 years. Probably has something to do with the paycheck and the Learjets, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I, I haven't found one of those. Yeah. I, I get a paycheck, but not the Learjet. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, uh, so tell us what's behind your 29 years of service at Wilshire. Well, I think, first of all, what's behind it is the congregation itself. I, I mean, if you if you think about our particular congregation at least. My predecessor was a pastor for 30 years, wow. and now I'm about to hit 29. So uh, it, it's not just that he and I were these really smart, sharp guys, as much as I think the congregation has a commitment to continuity and figuring out how to work out its problems rather than uh, create more. Someone said you had the best hair in CBF life. That might have, <laughs> that have right? something to do with it. Yeah. I love about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, CBF is known for having young Baptists. Um, uh -huh. and, and often, um, as we enter into a ministry place, especially when we're um, few in years in ministry experience, there's, there's those first few years, there's a sense of unsettledness yes. of a new ministry context. So what advice would you give to ministers that are sensing that unsettledness in the first few years? Well, first of all, be patient. I mean, it's so difficult to do so, uh, but usually that is the product of uh, coming into a new environment where everyone else knows the history but you. And so you're turning around being sabotaged by someone who thinks that well, this is the way we've always done it, and you have to kind of learn their history, but they also have to learn who you are uh, so that you keep the integrity of your own life. I, I think of it sort of like tuning a frequency uh, where, you know, they have to tune their ears to your voice, and you have to tune your voice to their ears, and after a while, the sync happens, and they, they, you, you sort of get the way uh, this church operates, and they get the way you operate and so that first few years is about finding the sink hmm. yeah. I wonder if, I mean 29 years of service you know how many times have you felt like you've had to to resync yourself along the way okay I think that's a really important thing when I first came I, I looked at my predecessor and thought you know 30 years how in the world did you do that and uh, and, and it's not really true that it's one year at a time uh, so much as it is, I think, different seasons mm -hmm. uh, where you, you come a, 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 
you, you come to a time when you feel like, okay, I know how to do this now. Am I just going to continue to do the same thing uh, for a long time? Or am I going to go to another church? Or what are my choices here? How do, I, how do I think about this? And when people call me and say, how did you stay 29 years in a place? What I usually say to them is, you have a choice that at certain times uh, during the course of your ministry in a church, you can either choose to become the pastor of another church or you can choose to become another pastor of your church. Mm. And that means, I think, that you have to reinvent yourself. You have to work differently. So if you, if you decide to become another pastor of your church instead of the pastor of another church, then I think what happens is you say, what can someone else do that I've been doing? Uh, what new passion do I have that will become uh, the place where I put more of my energies? And, and when you get to do that and work differently, then everybody is vitalized by that. I think some ministers, um, I think we, we come to that place of subtleness, and it's easy to, um, to maintain what we have helped create with other people. And there's the, the tendency to not rock the boat, for, for lack of better terms. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and you in the last couple of years have <laughs> have said you know what boat rocker let's let's yeah. let's not keep things even keel let's maybe let's maybe move this thing along forward in a way that we as a church are sensing and discerning God calling us to. So what what advice would you give to those that are sensing some tremendous convictions uh, to bring a theological shift within the church um, of how to do that well. Well, first of all, I think you can't all of a sudden do something you haven't been doing. In, in, in the case of uh, what you're talking about specifically now is that in, in November of 2016, uh, our church decided to become fully inclusive of LGBTQ Christians. And uh, that was a, a, the process of a deliberative process, but it was also a painful, uh, disruptive time for the church. Uh, the good news is that the church is doing very well now, and uh, we've gained back about two-thirds of the members we've lost. Uh, all new people, nobody came back, maybe one or two people have come back. Um, but uh, I would say that, uh, you know, one of the ways to look at it uh, really is that <clears throat> I love when, when the book of Hebrews talks about for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It's not for the joy in the moment, it's for the joy ahead. Mm. And what we have learned is that the suffering of this present time is nothing compared to the joy of seeing uh, our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender friends coming into the church, finding a sense of life together with us, uh, feeling as though they've reconnected with God or maybe for the first time, mm. and certainly feel at home in the church. That's a whole new joy that we would have missed if we were uh, only saying, what's the safe choice here? Mm. And so from time to time, I think you, you know, on this one, Andy, I, I pretty much had to realize that it, at my age and stage of life, the choice was, you know, do I, um, who am I going to, who am I going to disappoint? Mm. Uh, because you're going to disappoint somebody. Yeah. Uh, this is not a matter you can... Um, you know, you can dodge. And the more I've looked at it, the more I think that all the pastoral choices are a matter of faithful betrayal. 
you're going to be faithful to someone or something, and in doing so, you're going to betray someone or something else. And you have to decide which it's going to be. And so in our case, uh, being faithful to a vision of the gospel that I really captured my attention and animated me and made me believe was right meant betraying people who believed that um, that was um, disrespectful to the history of our church and to the people who disagreed with us. And it was... Uh, uh, it, it was disruptive in a way that they couldn't accept. Uh, but the alternative to that, of course, is that you are faithful to these folk and then you are betraying your sense of the vision of the gospel. And so it's always that choice, isn't it? And uh, I think sometimes we have to do it for me personally. I don't know how I look my kids in the mirror, uh, in the face or myself in the mirror if I hadn't. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't ask you that question to poke the bear uh, of either side of no. this conversation within our right. fellowship. But I bring that up to say that um, that Wilshire went through a transformation, and transformation uh, took time, yep. and it was painful. Uh. Um, and um, there's something right. to be said about uh, we as the church, the local church, oftentimes no matter what it is, uh, changing the way we approach worship, changing the way we approach ministry, changing the way we relate to our community. Um, there needs to be some pain involved with it because it means it's it's real and uh, it no that's really true I think um, that you know part of what the church has to offer the world is a model of how redemption took place so it didn't happen because Jesus died in his sleep as a, a saint and 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 woke up then uh, and said look if you live like me everything's gonna be great he actually went to the cross hello so why should we think that we should be part of something God is up to and not have to suffer some sacrifice, some pain in the process of doing that? Uh, now, it's, it's easier today for me to tell you that uh, than it was in the moment because it was, it was so painful and difficult in the moment. But I, I, I really do think that nothing great happens in the work of the gospel where we're not uh, going to experience some suffering with and for others and experience some of it ourselves. The, good, the, the thing I did learn through this whole process is no matter who you're advocating for, whether it's race or you know, women uh, in ministry, LGBTQ folk, uh, none of the pain that we experience personally or the loss that those of us who have been privileged have had to give up, no matter what we are feeling, none of it compares at all to the pain and suffering and loss and exclusion that these people that we are advocating for have felt for a long, long time. So when we do this, we are just getting a taste ourselves in solidarity with people who have known that. And on the other side of it, they share their joy with us and we are, we are all changed. It's, a, it's really a beautiful thing. For those that are joining us on Facebook Live, we're speaking with Dr. George Mason of Wilshire Baptist Church. Um, you uh, have developed a project called The Good God Project, and you're 10 episodes into it as far as yes, I understand it? Yes, so 10 episodes released. I think today is 11, actually. Okay, so, so tell, yeah. us, tell us more about it. Well, Good God Project is a, a similar to what we're doing right here, a video and audio uh, uh, conversation. Uh, we call it Good God because of both sides of that, that is the common good, and how your faith plays into your investment in the common good. And so, uh, good God sometimes is an exasperated phrase we use, and sometimes it's a, a celebration, right? And so, uh, 
we explore that with people who are uh, involved in the community, politicians and pastors and uh, community leaders, uh, nonprofits, people like that, educators. And so it's been fascinating to have these conversations, as you obviously know, because we're, we're doing this together now. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it, it's put out on various formats and Facebook and uh, uh, YouTube and uh, iTunes and all of that. So. Well, your project's a little different. The the host is a lot taller and a lot more handsome. So I don't know I, about know, that. I, I vertically thank, thank challenged. Thank you for saying so. so, though. That's right. All right. So, so what was the motivation behind behind the project? Uh, you know, immortality. I'm getting old, and I, you know, <laughs> I sort of, you know, want to do something fun and different, and uh, that I think, uh, honestly, I think, you know, part of it is uh, I, I am thinking about uh, sometime in the future. I'm not going to be the pastor anymore, and uh, I need to be involved in the kinds of ministries and, uh, uh, and doing good things in the community that take advantage of the fact that I've been around a long time and I know a lot of people too. So uh, the good news is nobody said no to me yet. Uh, when they ask, they, they all say yes. And so, and I don't pay them and they come and sit down and have a conversation and uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's a lot of fun and hopefully we're helping. I, I think what's happening, Andy, is we, we have so many vested interests in uh, issues where news outlets are almost propaganda making, you know, and, and, and there's so few places where people can have civil dialogue, conversations where there's a respect and a back and forth and where we get clarification and we try to always drive toward the common good. I, I think that's a modeling that I, I hope this will represent. All right, so officially 11 episodes in. What, what is your greatest hope for the project? My greatest what? Hope. Hope. Uh, you know, I think the greatest hope is just that, that people will actually change their mind about something. Uh, nobody seems to change their mind about anything anymore. Uh, but maybe they will, they will hear something that will say, I understand that better, and maybe my point of view isn't the only one, and therefore I need to be sensitive to somebody else. Uh, if, we can, if we can do that... Uh, it, it, if my mind changes from time to time, that'll be a good thing, too, because that's real conversation. Well, if you're looking for the best hair in the fellowship, you need to go to <laughs> Wilshire Baptist Church here in Dallas, Texas. Oh, my goodness. No. <laughs> yeah. George, thank you for taking the time out to, to have Andy, the conversation. Lots of fun. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us. We hope you're beginning to look into General Assembly, June 17th to the 21st in Birmingham, Alabama. Experiencing Christ's love is only the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor as you join your fellowship family to worship, learn, and grow together. Through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with live podcast interviews and entertainment, you'll meet cooperative Baptists from around the United States and beyond. For more information, visit cbf.net backslash General Assembly. Well, our guest is Melissa Rogers. She is the non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings Institution. From 2013 to 2017, she served as a special assistant to the president, executive director to the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. That was a long name tag you had <laughs> right. under the Obama administration. And having previously been the chair of inaugural advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships, Prior to that, she was the director of Wake Forest University's Divinity School Center of Religion and Public Affairs. Melissa has also served as the executive director of Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life and general counsel of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. 
Alyssa, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. All right, I have to start off with a very tough question. You ready? Okay. What contact have you had with John Stamos since our last interview? <laughs> um, none that I can think of. None whatsoever. <laughs> so for those that listened to our interview with Melissa last year, uh, when I started following her on Twitter, it somehow populated that I also should follow John Stamos oh, at the okay. same time. Yeah. Okay. I, that so was you've been following John Stamos. No, no, no. I, I never clicked and followed <laughs> Uncle Jesse. But okay, because I, I, I haven't been. I have to confess. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I was about to say, we, we're going to search both of our followings on Twitter to see. But um, anyways. Uh, so you get asked a lot of questions uh, about religion and politics. In fact, you know, we brought you in <laughs> to CPF to talk about that this week. So what's something you wish that you were asked more about besides those two topics? I, uh, well, in the last uh, week or so, a question that I would love to be asked as a longtime Washington Capitals fan is who won the Stanley Cup? <laughs> Lord. You know, as a longtime 20-year Carolina Hurricanes fan, I don't want to hear anything. Oh, we've hit a sore spot yeah. here. <laughs> I mean, you I'll do. I'll try not to rub it yeah. in, but we had been waiting a very long time to claim that trophy, which Ovi and the team proudly took all around Washington, D.C. this past week. Yeah. Well, uh, you did have to make reference to the greatest cherry picker in NHL history. But, you know, that's I'm not biased. I'm not biased at all. But, okay, besides the Washington Capitals and rubbing that into all the, you know, because we're in Texas and they really love hockey here. So, um, so what, other, what other topics do you wish you were asked more about? Um, let's see. Uh, I guess um, hiking. I'm a big hiker. I love to uh, go to national par new national parks. I try to visit all the national parks I possibly can and do as much hiking as I can. And I've gotten into trail running, so um, doing trail races in the, in the mountains um, when I can on weekends and stuff. So that's another fun hobby. Yeah, unfortunately, the price tag to go to national parks has gone up in the last uh, year. That's so. true, but yeah. that is a price well paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... Um, most recently, uh, your work in the Obama uh, White House. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what were the, some of the, the apex moments of your experience there? Um, great. So it was such a wonderful experience, um, and there's so many great memories, but I'm just going to pick a few of them. And some that uh, were in a workshop earlier today may have heard some of these. Um, one of the great things that we were able to do is prepare for the visit of Pope Francis to the United States for the first time and uh, put together a policy agenda that reflected some of the values that President Obama and Pope Francis share. And that included um, uh, the president announced when Pope Francis arrived that he was uh, going to make a presidential determination that we should admit many more refugees to the country than we had been, while not cutting any corners on the rigorous vetting process that refugees undergo. And we also announced some new partnerships and some new steps we were taking to promote religious freedom around the world, including the creation of a new post at the State Department to protect the rights of, and safety of religious minorities around the world. And we announced um, a bunch of partnerships that were aimed at um, combating climate change, both in the United States and in, uh, internationally. And that's important for so many reasons. Obviously, care for creation um, is so important. And also because climate change really 
uh, first and foremost hurts the most vulnerable. So um, we set up partnerships with both faith-based and uh, humanitarian groups, um, both in the United States and beyond, to try to work on these issues to try to prevent uh, climate change from happening and to try to address disasters when they do strike that you know we think are linked to climate change. So. Um, planning for that visit and then actually rolling out the policy and welcoming Pope Francis to the United States was a great experience. Um, and also um, some other highlights included working on the Ebola virus um, when it emerged in West Africa and the kind of teamwork that happened across government, religious and humanitarian groups to try to tackle this dread disease. Um, both in West Africa where it emerged and then dealing with it at home um, when we had some cases you know occur here as, as did in Texas. Uh, so what we saw there is that you know President Obama knew that the military's response was going to be critical, the medical community's response, but he also knew that the response of faith-based and humanitarian groups was going to be key because they were going to ensure that correct information got to people instead of you know, rumor and fear-mongering. Uh, he knew that uh, faith-based groups were going to play a very important role in um, helping faith communities to understand health practices that they needed to adopt, especially, um, again, in West Africa. So they, for example, government and religious leaders worked together to develop safe burial practices for people um, who had died of Ebola because in some faith traditions there is a practice of handling the body um, uh, at a burial, and that was resulting in the transmission of the Ebola virus. So together, religious leaders and, and medical leaders worked on developing safe burial practices, and the religious leaders taught um, other religious leaders how to, you know, use those practices and make sure that they were implemented. And um, then we worked together to, you know, raise, to ensure that there was enough money, both on the government side and the private side, to deal with this big threat. And then to deal, once we had survivors of Ebola, um, to make sure that they weren't stigmatized, you know, that they weren't shut out of places um, because they, people were fearful about the disease. So one, one great story is um, uh, Dr. Kent Brantley, who actually was treating people who had Ebola in West Africa. When the disease emerged, he was a medical missionary. He then contracted the disease himself, um, was treated, and thankfully, made a full recovery. And one day I was working at the White House and uh, got an email from uh, Kent and his team asking if the president would like to meet him. And that was one of those emails when I got, and I knew immediately, yes, President Obama was gonna meet, wanna meet Kent Brantley. So Kent and his wife, Amber, came to the White House. They're truly inspiring people. And they had wonderful stories to tell um, about, you know, their own experiences and also very vital information for us to know. And uh, so President Obama welcomed Kent and his wife Amber into the Oval Office and there were cameras there, you know, to take pictures of this moment. And this was fairly early on. And those pictures went all around the world. And one of the articles that accompanied the pictures said, you know, if President Obama can welcome an Ebola survivor into the Oval Office, then we know that, you know, we can do that too. And there's no reason to be fearful of Ebola survivors. And indeed, at the following National Prayer Breakfast, um, President Obama reflected on all this and said he was 
so inspired by the fact that churches and synagogues and mosques were actually insistent about, about welcoming Ebola survivors back into the pews and played such a central role in making sure that people understood the real facts and had a compassionate response. So, you know, that's just a couple of stories, but they're things that will always stay with me. And it just reminds me of how, how much the partnership of government and religious groups properly structured, consistent with our First Amendment guarantees, can be so much more than the sum of their parts and can actually change lives and change a response from a fearful response to a compassionate response. And um, I was so inspired to see this happen. I had been on the other side of the fence with religious groups working before, but it gave me a whole new appreciation to be able to see it from the other side from government side and to see how much government counts on religious leaders to be truly what Martin Luther King said we should be, which is the conscience of the state. Hmm. I would have just, if I was you, I would have stopped with, I organized Pope Francis, like that was the apex moment, but then you, you had to get into like all these extraordinary things that you did over a four year period there. Uh, for those that don't stalk Melissa on uh, Twitter like I do, her Twitter picture, her banner picture is uh, meeting Pope Francis. So. Um, is there any way you can promise that uh, after today it'll be the pictures that Jeff Hewitt is taking right now as your, <laughs> as your banner picture? This has got to be a high, high moment, uh, you know, in your career, hopefully, to, to sit down and have this conversation. So, uh, so obviously, serving in that capacity, um, you get to experience what it looks like day after day. And we've made a shift in a new administration. Um, and last month, uh, the President Trump unveiled uh, his new White House office. And uh, you wrote an article in the Washington Post and stating that um, Trump's new faith office actually weakens religious freedom. Uh, so tell us more about the plan and why you believe it weakens religious freedom. Okay, sure. So um, President uh, Trump, as Andy said, announced uh, in May that he would establish, um, I believe, it's a, establish an advisor, a White House advisor on a faith and opportunity initiative, and he signed an executive order to that effect. So he made some changes to the way the White House does this work, um, and we don't know, that advisor has not been named, so, you know, we still have to find out who that will be, and, you know, the person who, who serves personnel is policy, so that'll be important uh, for us to look at that. Um, I think that you know, there were a number of things we should talk about related to that executive order, but I'll highlight one of them in particular, um, and that was that the executive order um, ended up striking some religious liberty protections that were in previous executive orders, including ones that, um, well, namely some uh, executive order that President Obama signed. And, but let me, let me take you back to paint a fuller picture of how President Obama did his work in this space. On religious liberty issues, as you probably know, um, we can be fairly divided on these issues. And so President Obama, when he came into office, wanted us to have a real robust discussion among people with different points of view about religious liberty and other issues. So one of the things he did was create an advisory council for faith-based and neighborhood partnerships and named people of very different perspectives to that advisory council. So I served on it, um, but we had, we had people of all different faiths, um, all different political perspectives, ideological perspectives, um, you know, and all kinds of other diversity. 
And on the religious liberty issues, there was a great diversity of views. In fact, on the advisory council working groups, there was, um, it included somebody from President Bush's faith-based office and somebody from Americans United for separation of church and state and a bunch of people in between. Mm -hmm. So it was really an attempt to, you know, mirror some of the debate we're having in the country. And so the president said, rather than coming in and making changes right away to, for example, things President Bush had done in this space, President Obama said, let's, let's ask this diverse group to do something difficult. Let's ask them to see if they can find some common ground. And so I, I had the great honor of cheering that council. And um, there were days when I wasn't sure that we were going to find common ground. But, um, but we stuck with it, and uh, we ended up finding a lot of common ground. Now, we found, to be sure, differences as well. There were some very heated arguments. And uh, in fact, I remember um, at one point we ha were having some very heated arguments, and uh, one of the ministers next to me turned and he said, this is just our little piece of heaven, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, we, we had some, a lot of debates, and we came up with agreement around the idea of augmenting protections for the beneficiaries of social services for their religious liberty rights. So when you have a partnership with government, meaning a financial partnership here, one in which money will be passed from the government to the faith-based entity, um, it's important to protect several different aspects of religious liberty. First of all, um, it's important that the government not be promoting religion with those funds. Government grants and contracts shouldn't go to support religious activities, um, both because that would violate everybody's conscience and because we don't want, the government regulates what it funds. We don't want it to fund and then regulate religious activities. So you have to protect the government's interest in neutrality on that. You have to protect the interests of the religious provider. We don't want, as one of my friends, John Julio, says, we don't want the St. Vincent de Paul Center to have to change its name to the Mr. Vincent de Paul Center to get government funding. Um, so we need to protect the religious liberty uh, perspectives and identity of religious providers. We also need to protect the beneficiaries of social services. So think about uh, somebody who's in an employment program that the government is sponsoring. Um, they may be, you know, working, they probably are working very hard to keep, you know, ends together, to feed their family, to get perhaps retrained for a better job. Uh, they're not spending time reading the Federal Register. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to make sure first that, that this was the common ground that we found that beneficiaries should know their rights, right? And they should be given a written notice when they go to a social service program that says to them, here are your rights. You cannot be discriminated based on your religion or lack thereof. So you can't be turned away from religious provider because you're the wrong religion, air quotes, or you're not religious. Um, you have to be served equally. Um, you cannot uh, be pressured by any government-funded entity to participate in religious activities. So no one can overtly or, um, you know, subtly suggest to you as a beneficiary that you need to attend their privately funded Bible study in order to get the federally funded services that you were entitled to. So those are some of the protections. And then other protections um, related to 
making sure that you know there was a separation of any religious activities offered by the religious provider from government funded activities so nobody felt coerced. So we also added in a new protection for beneficiaries. Some beneficiaries may have objections to the religious character of a provider. For example, an Orthodox Jewish person may feel that because they're religious beliefs, they can't receive their benefits in a church. They can't enter a church. So they may need to say, I need to be assigned to another provider. So everyone on that advisory council, with all our different views on church and state, agreed that everybody should be able to go to an alternative provider if they objected to the, the religious character of the provider, and they agreed that we should create this written notice and make sure that people knew their rights, they knew they could go, all the ones I mentioned, plus this alternative provider requirement, and if any of their rights were violated, they would have on that written notice a number to call in government to say, wait, the rules aren't being observed here and there could be some follow-up. So that written notice to beneficiaries and this alternative provider requirement were things that everyone in this advisory council who were you know, very diverse agreed upon and President Obama put in an executive order and then um, it got, we put it in regulations. What President Trump did um, in May was to strike um, from President Obama's executive order these protections for religious liberty, striking the alternative provider requirement and striking the provisions that mandated a written notice to beneficiaries of social, federally funded social services. So I wrote an article in the Washington Post saying that uh, this is a mistake. Um, I painted the, you know, described how this was a common ground achievement, and, um, you know, President Trump had put his executive for, uh, order forward saying this is something to protect religious liberty. So I said back, you know, it taints the cause of religious liberty to remove protections for religious liberty in an initiative that's, suppo that's supposed to be promoting religious liberty, and, it, and that it's wrong to protect the provider's religious liberty, but not the beneficiary's religious liberty. Everybody's religious liberty, including the taxpayers, have to be protected. And I also found fault with it because this was a common ground process that was so difficult. I mean, I just can't tell you, I, I suggested earlier how difficult it was. I mean, I think that, um, you know, who knows uh, how many years I might have more to live if I hadn't had to go through all that <laughs> common ground process. But um, it was really a taxing process. And President Obama made the decision in some cases that we would forego, you know, maybe everything we wanted to do to, in order to have something that would be endorsed by people from all ideological and political perspectives and spent all that time and efforts assembling this group. So I'm afraid when, when another administration will come in and strike common ground agreement, then it's going to really hurt the prospect of a future president to ever engage in, com you know, ask a group to find common ground again. Um, and that hurts not only the common ground process, but the continuity of government. I mean, think about providers if the providers of and the beneficiaries in these situations are having to learn new rules with every administration that comes in, guess who that hurts? That hurts poor people. That hurts people who need government services. They, the providers should be able to focus on their job and not have to learn a whole new set of rules when a new administration comes in. 
So, you know, I was really disappointed by that um, for all the reasons I described and also because these partnerships can be controversial and yet we had found a way to, to you know, build more support on the left and the right for them. And uh, so I was very disappointed, needless to say, um, to see that he had struck those protections. Well, there's really no, I mean, biblical foundation behind this idea because Jesus didn't care about poor people. <laughs> and Jesus certainly, every time he was going to go heal somebody, said, if you'll sit down and listen to this devotion, and Bible study, and maybe 45-minute sermon, then, and only then, I'll give you sight again. So I'm, I'm not really sure where your argument's coming from. But. Yeah, so, so all right, so what, what do you think the motivation is behind uh, such a drastic change that, as you said, um, benefits the provider but doesn't benefit the, the beneficiary? Yeah, so, you know, the administration never really explained why it did what it did, but there were several um, sort of descriptions uh, I've heard several people describe uh, uh, reasons that they thought might be um, in play. One of them was that um, some people thought that the alternative provider requirement should not be placed on religious organizations, but rather on the government instead. That the government should have to make a referral to an alternative provider rather than the religious organization. Um, now, I would say that we have never, we have had the alternative provider protections already in place with respect to a couple of federal programs for a long time. The advisory council extended it to all federal direct aid programs that were domestic in nature. But we've had these requirements on some programs for years and we've never had a complaint from religious organizations. So, you know, they were suggesting that the religious organizations might have a problem with it, that it might hamstring them. We've not seen evidence of that. And then the other, you know, criticism I would have of that is if we're going to, if your argument is that the government should do it instead, then let's change it and make the government do it instead, instead of strike the protection. Right. Um, so, you know, there were other, you know, uh, other kind of descriptions of um, reasons that might have been in play, but I did not find any that had merit. Happy to describe more if you wish, but th none of them seemed like a good explanation for what happened. All right, I didn't prep you for this question. Okay. So, and so I thought maybe if we had time, um, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Uh, kind of interesting moment this week that um, I don't know if anybody's heard in CBF life, but the SBC is also in town this week. I don't know if we've heard that a gazillion times. Dallas uh, Morning Star had to write about it, you know, of course, if it wasn't obvious. But specifically, the Vice President of the United States uh, was a keynote speaker. Um, and following you on Twitter, you had, took some issue with that. Tell me, tell me more about uh, what your thoughts are there um, and, and what policy should be put in place there. Yeah. So I think it's really important for religious groups to think about these issues, whether they're ever going to invite a government official or a candidate to any religious gathering. And, and if they do so, you know, why they're doing so and, um, and making sure that what they do is consistent with law and ethics and theology. Um, and so I, I'm not sure what happened uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention, but I, it seemed that there was some confusion about the process there, and that to me was uh, a warning sign. And I say that just for all religious groups. We've got to think this through. But I think even, uh, you know, even bracketing the particular thing uh, that you're, you're referring to this week, we, we just cannot ever allow religious gatherings to be turned into partisan rallies. 
um, that is not a good use of religious gathering. So, you know, we have to be careful about that. That's on us. We have to protect our own religious gathering, the integrity of our witness, so that people understand what our message is and that it is not a partisan political message and that our loyalty is to Jesus and not to any political party, but rather to our our values as we understand them from the Bible. So, you know, that transcends and goes far beyond and, and maybe in direct conflict with political parties, both of them at different times. So we have to hold on to that because that is our DNA. That is our most precious, our most precious um, gift. And we have to make sure that we're living up to that gift and we are being not the master or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. And we've got to make sure that our message is protected. It is clear, it's hard enough to get our message out, but we can't have it diluted or confused. So I think that it was uh, a moment for us all to think about how important that is and to develop you know, procedures and policies that are written so that uh, we think about these things very carefully and then we think about in the moment that we're in, whether, you know, if, if we were even to say, you know, some religious group was to say, well, we're, we, we're not opposed to inviting government officials, but is it the right moment right now? And is this the right person to be speaking to our group? How will that affect our message? Our message and our witness and the integrity of that witness has to be the main thing and the decisive factor. So besides uh, the next couple of years of easy political and religious commentary mm -hmm. and writing on, on those things, what's next for you? Well, I'm uh, actually working on a book about uh, religion in American public life, and that's a lot of fun to do, but I will confess that I love having written. I Doing the writing itself <laughs> is a harder part of the process. So I'm uh, enjoying working on that. I'm working on that with Baylor University Press and um, my friend Carrie Newman and others. Uh, it's a wonderful process, and I'm really uh, so grateful to have the opportunity to sort of reflect on some lessons learned from uh, serving in the White House and, and other, you know, other experiences in my life. So that's uh, first and foremost for me this summer. And, um, and then I'm also uh, doing some work on, you know, as I always have done on policy issues in Washington, D.C., policy and law issues, and working on, um, in, with my friends in the Baptist Joint Committee on a lot of religious liberty issues that need to be addressed, um, particularly at this moment in our nation's history. Hmm. So when does the book come out? The book will probably, I think it'll be out, um, let's see, in the summer of 2019. Okay. So, yeah. So, maybe schedule a podcast interview for Sounds good. summer of 2019. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out here. I said 10 to 15 minutes, and you gave me a lot more. So, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your brilliant, brilliant work. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net. <laughs>